You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you five messages William Stewart presented at Moody Week 1970. William Stewart was a former businessman and pastor. Now, here is William Stewart on Today in the Word radio. I want to talk to you about something that was a thrill to my own life when I really discovered it. It's so easy for us to mouth various theological cliches. And in reality, they're not experiential. Do you remember how Paul, in writing his second epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 5, said, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Have you ever felt keenly and regrettably insufficient and inadequate? You say, well, isn't that the way we're supposed to feel? Not at all. If you are to regret your insufficiency of your own, that's good. But, oh, child of God, know what your potential is in God. But our sufficiency is of God, and He never leaves any place for insufficiency on the part of the experience of the child of God. And if you're one that senses an insufficiency, The commentary of your life is this. You're not making enough of God who is our sufficiency. Now, I want to pursue a course of bringing this home to my own heart in a new way as I bring it to you tonight. I'm sure that you're expecting that we should open to just one particular portion of the Word of God and expound that, and our hearts would be thrilled together. No, I tell you there's an avenue that I want to pursue And in pursuing this avenue, you will discover in a thrilling way just what the Apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit seeks to impress upon us. Oh, how wonderfully sufficient God is for the individual and every individual. Have you ever thought much about the names of God? Honestly, dear friend, I believe that every child of God should know the names by which our Heavenly Father identifies himself. Oh, there are various names in the Word of God that he employs for himself. But let me remind you, they're not there just for variety's sake. Each name that our Heavenly Father uses of himself is to convey to you and to me a certain characteristic and attribute of himself. It's not enough just to join together in joyful fellowship and blending our hearts and voices together as we have tonight singing these wonderful praises. Oh, let's get acquainted with him. For only as we get acquainted with him will we really know how sufficient he can be. We should know those names. We should know all of them. Now, names in the Bible are not there just for, um, to fill up space. Every proper name in the word of God has a particular meaning and is to convey a particular spiritual message. Often, a name was given a place to preserve the memory of what happened there, so far as the Word of God is concerned. You remember this was true with Abram and his experience when God called upon him to go into the land of Moriah and offer his son there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains he would show him. Abram was faithful in doing that. When he arrived at the appointed mountain peak in the land of Moriah, God says, build an altar. Place the wood there. Bind your son, place him there. 
And as Abram was about to take the life from that boy, you recall how God intervened, withstood him, froze his arm in midair. And he says, Abram, now I know your devotion to me. I know that thou fearest God. Look behind you. You'll find a ram caught in a thicket. He did. God said, take the ram. Loose Isaac. Place the ram there in his stead and offer that ram to me. And in verse 14, Abram just immediately announced the name of that spot, Jehovah-Jireh, the place where God saw to it. And I am sure that Abram never passed through the land of Moriah, whether he was close to that mountain peak or not. But what he recalled, it was in this place where I discovered something about God I didn't know before, that he was able to see to it when I needed him. Jehovah-Jireh. Many of us remember Jacob's experience. You recall on one occasion, as he tried to find sleep in a barren land, and he was wrestling with himself. He saw a ladder as it was positioned upon earth, and it reached to heaven, and the angels ascending and descending. And by the time he was through, or God was through with him in that vision, he called the place Bethel, which means the house of God. And never did Jacob pass that way. But what he remembered, he met God face to face in this particular spot, and he termed it the house of God. In chapter 32 of the book of Genesis, verse 30, you remember he had a wrestling match with the heavenly messenger. And after he'd gotten through with that wrestling match, he was not the same. He was a weaker man. He was reminded every time he took a step from that time on how insufficient he was, how sufficient God was. And he named the place Peniel. That is, I saw God face to face. So names in the Bible are wonderfully important, infinitely so. But I am not just interested in the names in the Bible. I want to take up simply four names that God has appropriated and employed for himself and let you see the wonder of him conveying his character and his attributes through each of these names. Now, uh, I think most of us know that before Israel was scattered abroad, that she had a national anthem, which was the 20th chapter, or rather the 20th Psalm. And one of the statements in that national anthem is this, verse 7. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Amen. Well, how can you remember the name of the Lord your God, and what important is that for you if you do not know the meaning of it? You remember in Psalm 138, I think it is verse 2. I will worship toward thy holy temple. I will praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Now what does that mean? Literally that no name that could fall from the human lips, no single expression that could fall from human lips would be adequate to describe our great, glorious, eternal, heavenly Father. So he says all his name. That means every name that the Word of God brings before us to identify our heavenly God. Now, the first name that uh, he employs for himself, of course, is found in the first chapter of the book of Genesis, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Most of us are aware of the fact that we did not get our Old Testament in English. 
we received it in Hebrew. The term that God uses there in verse 1 of Genesis 1 in the beginning, Elohim created the heaven and the earth. But our translators, to make it easy for you and me to read, injected this little word, three-letter word, God. And every time you read the word God in the Old Testament, it literally is to remind us of his real name in the Hebrew, Elohim. 2,700 times in the Old Testament, God employs this name for himself, Elohim, which is translated for us, for legibility reasons, G-O-D. Now this wonderful name, Elohim, is a name that he employs to convey his creative authority and power. Every time it's used in the Old Testament, it's related to some work of creation that our God is doing or some command that he is making on the basis of his creative authority. Every time you read that term God, every time that name Elohim is presented in the Old Testament. Significantly enough, it's a plural word. And in the Hebrew, plurality is three. That brings before us the Trinity. We have it uh, graphically presented to us in verse 26. And God said, Elohim said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And the New Testament comes to us in the abundance of revelation that God the Father was not only involved, but the Lord Jesus was involved and the Holy Spirit was involved when the creation of man was effected. I say this is a plural name. We read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, Elohim. Now, if this term, this noun Elohim, is plural. Will you please notice how it is followed in the verb? It's followed by a singular verb. The Lord our Elohim is one Lord. Now you know it's grammatically incorrect to use a singular verb with a plural subject. So far as I know, this is the only time in all of the English language that we are allowed to use a singular verb with a plural subject. But this is significantly important because God in his triune form is also individual. Now some people have found it difficult to understand the Trinity. And indeed, it is a deep eternal truth. But if I could simplify it in a way which has been a blessing to my own understanding, I would have you know that I am a triune individual in this respect, not that I'm body, soul, and spirit, but you see, I am a son. There was a day when I fell in love with a lovely young lady. So I became a husband. And the wonderful day arrived when God gave us a lovely child, a little boy. And thus I became a father. So I am a father, I am a husband, I am a son. But I'm still the one person. Elohim, how wonderful. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but one person. Always, Elohim is followed with that singular verb. Now I want to take up another one with you. Since Elohim conveys God's creative authority and power, here is one in Exodus chapter 4, verse 3. God says to Moses, I appeared unto Abram, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, by my name, God Almighty, 
but by my name Jehovah was I not known unto them. Well, would you believe that the name Jehovah, referring to our Heavenly Father, is used 7,600 times in the Bible? 7,600 times. But I challenge you to find the word Jehovah, the name Jehovah, 7,600 times in the English translation. It isn't there. Well, if 7,600 times in the Bible, how will I know it's there 7,600 times? Our translators almost obscured this. But nevertheless, I bow to them. They convey to us every time this name Jehovah is used, they convey it to us. And the little four-letter word, Lord, all in capital letters. Every time you read that word Lord in all capital letters, you're reading this name Jehovah. And it's God's redemptive name. Every time you read this name Jehovah, or the word Lord in capital letters, it's related to a redemptive work of our Heavenly Father. Every time. No time accepted. Every time. This is that ineffable, incommunicable name that was so revered by the Jews they would never write it on a piece of paper lest it fall to the ground. And thus this wonderful name of our Heavenly Father, name of redemption, would be contaminated. Now to show you how important these two are, that you may get them, I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis. The last verse, which I believe is verse 22, and then the first verse of chapter 7. In verse, the last verse of chapter 6 of the book of Genesis, we read something like this. You recall that in chapter 6, God gave explicit instructions to Noah for the building of the ark. This last verse says, Thus did Noah, according to all that, uh, who commanded him? Say it, audience. God, Elohim. And doesn't he have right and authority to command by virtue of the fact he's creator? Sure. So Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. But now forgetting the chapter division, look at the next verse, which would be in your Bible, chapter 7, verse 1. And somebody said something to Noah. Who said it? And the, say it, audience, Lord. Notice in capital letters. And the Lord said, come thou and all thy house into the ark. Would you please note that's a work of redemption. He's going to deliver Lot and his family from the impending judgment of the flood. So when it comes to giving instruction, he uses his title Elohim. Thus did Noah according to all that Elohim commanded him. So did he. But when it comes for deliverance, and the Lord said, come thou and all thy house unto the ark. To show you how, how really plain it is, look at verse 16 of chapter seven. And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh as who commanded, say it audience, God, Elohim. He has a right to command. Now notice how quickly he changes his name. And who shut them in? Lord, there's a work of redemption. There's a work of salvation. Do you see how important it is to know his name? Let's go to another one, which is a simple one. This is in Genesis chapter 14 and verse 22. In this wonderful chapter of Genesis, we have a sad report made, and particularly was it sad to Abraham. Because you see, his nephew Lot has been taken captive. There was a battle on, and it wasn't the first war, nor has it been the last, as most of us know. 
Five kings against four. Five kings against, kingdoms against four kingdoms. And in the kingdom of Sodom, the king of Sodom was taken prisoner, and so were the males of Sodom. And among the Sodomites was Lot. Now, it seemed as though Lot was going to be a captive forever. But God enabled Abram to be a military strategist on this occasion. And Abram said to the men of his own house, Come on, boys, let's go show them how to fight. And Abram took just the men of his household, went over, confronted these kings who had subdued all these other kings, and he delivered Lot and the king of Sodom, set them free. And when you get to about verse 21, the king of Sodom comes to Abram in a gesture of gratitude and thanksgiving and says to him, Now, you give me the persons that you have rescued from the kings, and you take all the spoils or the goods for yourself. But in verse 22, Abram responds, I will lift up my hand to the Lord, the Most High God. Oh, that should have been in quotes. That should have been underscored. That should have been boxed in. That should have been in brackets. But it isn't. And thus it's overlooked by many of God's children. The Most High God is one of our Heavenly Father's names. It's Elyon, E-L-Y-O-N. What does Elyon mean? The last part of the verse. Possessor of heaven and earth. And if I could translate that for you properly, it would sound something like this. He's sovereign of heaven. Whatever goes on in heaven, God's in control of it. But wait a moment. Here's a little appendage. And earth. Do you mean to tell me things are not out of hand with God here on this earth? Well, we may not have liked the way the Democrats run it. And we may not like the way the Republicans are run it, running it, but I'll say to you, things haven't gotten out of the hand of the Most High God, Elyon. He's still sovereign of heaven, and he's just as great in his sovereignty of earth. He's that. His name changes not. Now, I want to give you one more. And that's found in chapter 17 of the book of Genesis, and this is the one I want to labor for a few moments. Chapter 17 of Genesis, verse 1. And Abram was 90 years old and nine, and the Lord appeared unto Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty. Walk thou before me, or walk before me, and be thou upright, or mature, or perfect. Now this name, Almighty, is a very significant name, and I'm glad he employed it of himself. It really comes, or our translators, I should say, have used it to convey to us this name that God has in the Hebrew, El Shaddai, E-L-S-H-A-D-D-A-I. El means strong, Shad means breast, conveying to us that he's the strong-breasted one. He is the strong-breasted nourisher. Like a mother holds that little bundle of warm flesh to her breast, she's sufficient for that little one. So by this name, he wants to remind all of his children that he's more than enough. He's the all-sufficient one, the El Shaddai. Now I want to take you to a very familiar psalm, and it's, the, it's a psalm that I suppose is the favorite of millions of people. Who are the people of God? Psalm 91. 
In two verses, I want you to see that all four of these names that God has used of himself, he brings them together. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the, say it audience, most high. That comes from that name Elyon, don't forget, Genesis 14, 22. Shall abide under the shadow of the, say it, almighty, El Shaddai, John, uh, Genesis 17, verse 1. I will say of the, say it, Lord, Jehovah, my Redeemer. He is my refuge and my fortress. My, say it, God, Elohim, creator of heaven and earth. My God, in him will I trust. Did you see that all four of them were there? Now I want to labor this title or this name, El Shaddai, just a little bit. Almighty comes before us in the word of God. Would you believe that only twice it is used in the New Testament? I'll give you the first time. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 14, we read, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? But when we get to verse 17, But come ye out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And, touch not, and I will receive you. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters. Saith thee, saith Almighty, the El Shaddai. Now I want to labor this part of that expression just a little. I will be a father to you if you come out from among them. If you have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Well, isn't he my father by virtue of my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Doesn't the Savior promise that his father is my father? His God is my God. Yes, he does. Well, then what does he mean? If you will come out from among them and be a separate and touch not the unclean thing, I will receive you. I will be a father to you. Well, you see, I am a father. There were times in the life and experience of my son that he didn't permit me to be the father to him I wanted to be. He forced me to be a father to him that I didn't want to be. There were things that he did that necessitated disciplinary measures on my part. I shall never forget one of them. Oh, I think it must have been four or five, six, something like that. And we had uh, been conducting a large tent campaign in our home city right down in the midst of that metropolis. And it went on for three long months in weather similar to this. And I would preach a week and Billy McCarroll would come for a week, I would preach a week and Dr. Ironside would come for a week and that's the way we went on for those three long months. We employed a number of assistants and among them was some of the national child evangelism workers. Previous to each service at night, these child evangelism workers would have the children apart in that tent that was set aside for them and would deal with them, give them the lesson of the gospel. And on this particular evening, as Dr. McCarroll and I were walking to the platform, I was stopped by this child evangelism worker. And she said, Mr. Stewart, I think David wants to tell you something. Now, uh, I thought I knew my son, but I was really learning. I looked down, I put my arm around him, and I said, son, you want to tell dad something? He screwed that little white shoe around in the shavings, and uh, so the lady said, tell him, tell your daddy what has happened. I gave my heart to Jesus. Well, I kissed him and hugged him up good. Couldn't help but cry a little bit in my own heart. I went to the platform. 
the service was over. This happened one evening. Three evenings later, we were going home, my wife and I. My son was in the back seat, standing on the back seat, leaning up over the back of the front seat between his mother and myself. Mother said, uh, Daddy, David is going to have to have uh, a little whipping tonight. He was bad in church. I turned to him and I said, David, I thought you gave your heart to Jesus. I did, but I took it back again. <laughs> so after we entered the house, I went to the bedroom and I called him. I sat down on the side of the bed and um, I said, Dave, come over here. I want to tell you now why I'm going to uh, spank you. And I, had my, I told him as he stood off at a distance, I saw he wasn't going to voluntarily come for his, uh, voluntarily come for his chastening. When I was through, I said, come on, lean over, my, lean over my knee. I spread my legs apart so that he'd lean over there. And I had the paddle in my hand. And those big eyes filled with tears and he began to sob and he said, wait a minute, Daddy, let's pray about it first. <laughs> now, I really didn't want to be that kind of daddy to him. But because of his disobedience, he forced me to be the daddy I didn't want to be. And because you and I keep fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, we force our God to be the kind of father to us he doesn't want to be. But if we are obedient and come apart and touch not the unclean thing, he says, I will receive you and I will be the father I want to be to you. Well, what kind of a father do you want to be to me? I want to be the Almighty. I want to show you I'm the El Shaddai, which means the strong-breasted nourisher, the all-sufficient one. And I must submit to you, my beloved friends, I'm fearful that too many of the children of God have not entered into the area of spiritual experience by virtue of the fact they have refused to come apart, be separated from the unfruitful works of darkness, separated unto him. I'm fearful by virtue of that. The majority of us have never touched the fringe of knowing how sufficient our Heavenly Father really is. How do I convince myself of that? because I find so many of God's children drinking at other cisterns and other wells as though God, our Heavenly Father, our El Shaddai, was not enough. Our sufficiency is of God. Now, the second time it is used in the New Testament is in the book of the Revelation, chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading at verse 4. By the time you find verse 8, we shall be there. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be to you and peace from him which is, which was, which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so. Amen. Now we're at verse 8. I am Alpha and Omega. That's interesting. Now I think everybody in this room knows the Greek language. Well, at least you know something of it. For here is the first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Alpha and Omega. That's the Greek. I'm Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, which was, which is to come, the, say it audience, Almighty. There, we have brought over into the New Testament this wonderful name of our Heavenly Father in Hebrew, the El Shaddai. Well, after all, in the Greek, how could you discover the sufficiency of our Lord? His all-sufficiency, better than uh, using the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last. You say, I don't quite get you. Have you tried to exhaust the alphabet, even the English alphabet? Oh, now come. I know how you feel when you try to call home sometimes and the phone is busy. You are just fully persuaded that ultimately your wife is going to exhaust the alphabet. She's hanging on that phone so long. Well, perhaps they could indict us too. But you have never found anyone yet that could exhaust the alphabet. And I'm inclined to adopt the opinion. This is why the Holy Spirit identifies the Lord Jesus by means of the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. Just to remind us that he's more than enough. The alphabet will never be exhausted. Neither can you exhaust him. And it's quite difficult, you understand, to get along without the alphabet. I recall when our boy was just a baby in arms. And he wasn't able to speak as yet. And this has been repeated millions of times. His little body was so fevered. He was crying. He was squirming. There was no comfort for him at all. How many times I would take him in my arms and say, Oh, my boy, if you could just talk and tell Daddy what hurts. You see, the alphabet is almost indispensable. You just can't get along without it. And may I say to you, you can't afford to get along without the Lord Jesus. The alphabet, Alpha and Omega, the Almighty, the All-Sufficient One. But we are so inclined to leave as children of God the impression with the ungodly that our Heavenly Father is not enough, though he is El Shaddai. You remember Paul had an experience, and in closing, I want to call this to your attention. It's recorded for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell or out of the body I cannot tell, how that he was caught up into the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I cannot tell, how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for man to utter. Dropping down to verse 7, And lest I be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelation, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. And for this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. But he said unto me, 
My grace is, say it, audience, sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. If we didn't have it said to us through the names of God, we have it said to us so succinctly in deliberate declaration that's understandable to every one of us. His grace is sufficient. And His grace is sufficient for thee. Try to add something to that. But do you understand it? Oh, do you? Do I? Could I take you to the Atlantic coast? And with me, we would remove our shoes, our socks, step out in the shallows of the water, look down and see the little minnows. Have you ever seen a minnow standing or, uh, still in the water? They're the most nervous little critters. And if you and I could engage in child philosophy for just a few moments, just imagine hearing the Atlantic Ocean say to that little minnow, little minnow, what makes you so nervous? And that little minnow's reply would be, well, Mr. Ocean, I was just thinking of how much of you I have to drink every day. And I'm getting nervous that one of these days I'm gonna drink you all up. You see, that's child philosophy. But how many of the people of God are almost neurotics? They're so nervous. And if we bore deeply enough into that conscience, down in the inward parts, we'd probably discover that the majority of us haven't found out that our Heavenly Father is more than enough. He's El Shaddai. We don't need to be nervous. I recall reading an incident about Bob Ingersoll. You remember that contemporary? I speak of it in a kindly way, in the days of D.L. Moody, to this man Moody, who means so much to the world, meant so much and still does. Bob Ingersoll, of course, had no regard for God nor man. And he continually was moving across America and other areas of the world, delivering addresses as only an infidel would do. His address of fame, if we can say it, why I believe there is no God. Whether it was in the city of Chicago or Philadelphia, New York, I don't recall. But he had an audience of over 10,000 people. And he stood on that platform for almost an hour and a half. And he delivered his exegesis as to why he believed there was no God. When he'd concluded, he didn't have a PA system. He didn't have a sounding board. He spoke in such a manner that every person in that auditorium could hear him distinctly, plainly. When he concluded, he pulled his watch out of his vest pocket. He pressed the stem and the lid flew open. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, if there is a God, I give him three minutes to strike me dead. And he stood there with that watch in his hand. The record declares that men began to faint, not women, in various sections of that auditorium. The tension was so severe. 
we are told that practically everyone in that auditorium could hear that watch tick. They waited to see if God would strike him dead. At the end of the three minutes, he snapped the lid of that watch shut, jammed it into his pocket as he walked off the platform. The people heard him say, didn't I tell you there was no God? In a few weeks, this got across the ocean to England. There were two young seminarians early one morning standing on a street corner in London. Phillips Brooks walked up. He stretched himself to the fullness of his stature, squared his shoulders, and he said, gentlemen, what's the burden of your discussion this morning? They informed him of what Bob Ingersoll had said. Didn't I tell you there was no God? If there is, I give him three minutes to strike me dead. This was his reply. Does that gentleman from America think he can exhaust the patience of our God in three minutes? I'd like to paraphrase it a little for you, dear friend. Do you think you can exhaust the grace of God? in that little puny lifetime of yours. Then if you can't, why don't you launch out experientially into the sufficiency of your heavenly father, the El Shaddai? God would not have you to know experientially anything less than this about him. Oh, friend, if you are here without Christ, how foolish you are to spend another hour without him when he promises to be all that you need and more. What more can a God of love do? Shall we pray? Oh, loving God, gives our hearts such a thrill to speak of the wonders of thyself. So unselfish, so outgoing, that you would give yourself for us to bring us into the relationship with thee, whereby you want to prove yourself to us, not only Elohim, the right by creation to give orders and commands to us, not just Lord, Jehovah, our Redeemer, not just Elyon, sovereign of heaven and earth, to remind us that things are not out of your control but oh, to make known to us this glorious characteristic of thyself, El Shaddai, all-sufficient for saint and sinner. God forbid that we should trust in the arm of the flesh one night longer, but we should let go and let God be what he wants to be and discover for ourselves that not in a lifetime will we exhaust 
the sufficiency of our Heavenly Father. May sinners walk out of darkness into his marvelous light by exercising faith in Christ tonight. May saints find the secret of this victorious Christian life, the sufficiency of God. I pray in his dear name. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and a message William Stewart presented at Moody Week 1970. William Stewart was a former businessman and pastor. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.